Hey guys, welcome to Your Forest, where we talk about environmental sciences and outdoor recreation, basically all things forest and environment. Uh, today, I've got a cool podcast, very technical. Um, I got a little carried away with the jargon, I apologize, I hope you guys don't get lost. Um, we're talking about remote sensing, and remote sensing is basically... It's a way of measuring things from a distance. So you think about uh, radar and sonar, um, LIDAR, which is light detection and ranging. LIDAR is basically you're shooting lasers from an airplane, and it's giving you uh, the height of the ground and whatever else is on the ground, whether it be rocks or trees and stuff. Um, and then using aerial photography, so 3D aerial photography, using satellites, um, basically any way of remotely sensing something <laughs> um so that's what we're talking about and this type of technology is totally changing the forest industry as well as a million other industries right uh it just allows us to get better more accurate data and with better data becomes better management obviously for obvious reasons and uh yeah so i wanted to bring on guillermo castilla and rob skaken to talk about uh their research that they do they're both researchers for the government of canada um researching remote sensing technologies and the use thereof in the forest industry. So Rob does stuff for fire. Guillermo does a bunch of stuff. He does some inventory stuff. And yeah, they're just generally they're doing a bunch of stuff regarding research for remote sensing. So Rob has a bachelor's of science in land use and environmental science and a master's in geographic information systems. And Guillermo has a master's of science in forest engineering uh, a master's in science in environmental impact assessment and a PhD in remote sensing. So they know their stuff. Definitely listen to what they have to say. Really cool stuff. Yeah, it was a really good podcast. Uh, it was the longest one we've, we've ever done. Uh, there was a lot to talk about. Uh, yeah, I, again, I apologize for the jargon that, that is in there. Usually I'm on top of it. I get really pumped up talking about remote sensing because I think it's, it's a huge next step towards uh, better management. So I kind of got carried away and forgot to check myself and to check the jargon. But uh, I hope you guys like it. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Um, one of the things that uh, the Rob wanted me to mention um, is the National Burned Area Composite. That's uh, what they're working on. It calculates, calculates forest burned area on a national scale using the best available post-fire data from provincial and territorial fire management agencies. Um, and Natural Resources Canada. So, yeah, we, we talk a bunch about that. That it's one of their one of their things, basically measuring fire burned area through satellites. Uh, really cool, and uh, yeah, a bunch of other stuff that we're doing. Automated inventories. We talk about drones. So yeah, drones is another way of remote sensing. So they have they, you can put lidar on there or, or or video or a number of things, right? So really cool, cool, cool stuff. Three D models. Um, yeah, really interesting. Very specific. Again very specific. So, uh, I hope you guys like it and, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I guess I gotta do sponsors. <laughs> uh, we got, uh, three sponsors. Greenleaf forestry is the first, first one. And, uh, I couldn't do this without them. They gave me the space to do this and the time and the opportunity. So thanks Greenlink. And then also, uh, the forest resource improvement association of Alberta. Uh, again, couldn't do it without them. They provide me with a lot of help. So I appreciate it. And uh, Damaged Timber is uh, an apparel company out of Edmonton trying to support environmental sciences um, through a bursary. So 10% uh, 10 of all the sales of their clothing goes towards this bursary, which they're going to give out 
uh, this fall, I think, is the first one. And check out their website at damagetimber.com. And if you put in Your Forest 10 at checkout, you can get 10% off. Uh, they got really cool uh, uh, t-shirts and hats and toques and, yeah, cool stuff. Really, really cool stuff. I really like it. Uh, I, I wear their stuff all the time. So check it out. Um, yeah, that's about it. So uh, without any further messing around, here is myself, Rob, and Guillermo. Let's just start off right off the bat. Uh, let's just explain what remote sensing mm-hmm. is and kind of all the tools that are being used there. Yeah. Yeah. For me, yeah, I get so jacked up about yeah. remote sensing that I get carried away and I get into the details without explaining myself. Yeah. So yeah, let's start with remote sensing, just a kind of a definition and the tools being used, that kind of stuff. Okay. So remote sensing is, uh, is a field within uh, geographic information science that uh, deals with the capture and the analysis of uh, data, mostly images acquired from either planes or satellites. Right. And the name is kind of uh, funny, at least to me, because, <laughs> um, uh, well, you want to, the, the field started, as you know, uh, after the Second World War or even before, uh, after the First World War, and there was a big development of aerial photography right and uh, was used mostly for reconnaissance during war operations mm-hmm. and then after the after the second world war with the cold war and all this that there were these u2 uh, spy planes that were uh, kind of filming where the russians would have their their <laughs> missile base and stuff and yeah. they would even drop the film and and then there was some other aircraft collecting the the data because they were high, right? Uh, so yeah, the it, Cuban Missile Crisis. I think that's how they figured out where the yeah the missile exactly around the sixties. Yeah. The the actually the term remote sensing was coined around the sixties, and it was okay. um, a, a officer from the U.S. Uh, research uh, naval research uh, office who who came up with this uh, term because at that time they were, in addition to photography, they were starting to develop all the kind of sensors, right? Um, like radar, no? Like uh, they had first uh, the synthetic aperture ra- radar, but there was one side-looking radar that was the first one that were used to, to create images okay. of the ground. And then they said, well, this is no longer photography. Right. So what 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 name can we come up with? You no, know? and they they use well, we are sensing with these uh, instruments that for the most part were cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, we are sensing distant objects or targets, and and so remote sensing will make sense. So, right. So uh, since then, it's gotten a lot more intricate. From from radar, now we have. LIDAR and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff, yeah. It is mostly based on the interaction of ele- electromagnetic energy with, with the ground, with the, the Earth's surface, with the objects in the ground. Right. There is an exception to that is um, sonar. Because sonar, sonar right. is, is acoust- acoustic, uh, is, is sounds. It's right. based on sounds. and uh, But uh, most all the remote sensing is based on electromagnetic electromagnetic energy right uh, and it can be recorded like uh, a photographic camera mm-hmm. passively so you have a, a source of illumination which is the sun yeah <laughs> most most of the time the sun it could be the moon no because we have 
also uh, satellite acquiring night imagery that is mostly based on on, on sources of light from the ground, but uh, yeah. it could be also from the moon. Okay. And um, and then we have uh, active sensors that uh, produce their own energy, no? and those are radar right. and more recently lidar. Right. right. Uh, and uh, so you have a and this is how remote sensing usually is divided you know, into active and passive sensor. No, but okay. this is kind of the upstream part of the field. No, so imagine uh, the analogy with oil and gas. Yeah, you have the upstream part of the industry and the downstream. Okay, so the upstream would be the capture of the data. No, and right. that involves so planning uh, and, yeah. and data capture. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, creating the the instrument deploying them and managing the mission right and in the case of the satellites more complicated you know you have <laughs> to, to launch the uh, platform yep. into the space and and then you have a ground segment that controls the platform and the sensor and and so that's the upstream side of remote sensing data right. capture and the downstream side, which is where we are, yeah. is to use this data to create information on on things that are on the ground, like, gotcha. uh, like trees. Right. And, uh, so yeah. we have, so we've got, so just to recap, so we've got aerial photography, basically, and that's uh, we do, and like for what I do, three dimensional aerial photography, right? So it's two images on top of each other, uh, and the overlap is what gives you three-dimensional right mm -hmm. same as i think it's the same it's kind of the same technology used for 3d movies and stuff it's kind of a stereoscope approach yeah but absolutely yeah it's the parallax created by like uh human vision is an example of a stereo right stereo vision no? we have our eyes that are away six to seven centimeters yeah and because we see different with each eye it yeah. creates a, a sense of the parallax right not a distance a displacement and, yeah. that allows us to estimate measure right exactly so, yeah. and so we have so we have yeah. that and then we have uh so you said satellites are, are one way so it's basically just and then we can use uh there's drown remotes or sorry ground remote sensing right so we can there's remote sensing from the like lidar, yeah. lidar from the ground yeah. and then there's uh what else would there be drones i guess yeah so uavs unmanned aerial vehicles yeah so and so that's why i was saying at the beginning that remote sensing is kind of uh, a term, well, it's going to stay for the long haul, I guess. But the thing is, um, because of the progress in the technology, things have been blurred, the limits. Now, I, uh, like if you tell me 30 years ago, yeah, remote sensing was very clear. It's either made from planes or from satellites. Right. But now we have drones, and we can even do remote sensing from the ground in terrestrial like that would be an example of that. Right. So we are uh, sensing a tree from a distance. I would call that more proximal sensing than remote sensing because it's not <laughs> that we are 700 kilometers away from our object of interest, like uh, when we acquire imagery from a satellite. Yeah. But we are just tens, uh, a few tens meters away from, from the target. So in that sense, I think that uh, UAV, so drones and all this stuff would be better called proximal sensing because we are far, pretty close to the targets. Right. So it's yeah. basically just remote sensing is basically just recording mm. information about something from a distance, basically. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Yeah. So based on a sensor, 
And with that sensor, that's where we get the the, the different energy wavelengths that are being recorded. And um, and with the different satellite sensors, we can uh, we get different spatial resolutions, so mm-hmm. we can detect you know very fine detailed stuff on the ground, um, even down to the tree level. Yeah, uh, that's with the more high resolution satellites that we get. The trade-off on those are is that you get a smaller footprint. Right. Uh, you can't do as much mapping because the, the the scale of that pixel is so much smaller. So oh, okay. One of the most common like satellite sensors that we we use is the Landsat, which is a thirty meter uh, pixel, and we can you know we can map areas that are you know, uh, I think the the footprint of a, a Landsat's like three hundred kilometers by. By roughly like 200. 200 by 200. By so that's one area. Yeah, so it's a huge area that we can okay. map all at once right. based yeah. on this uh, image footprint. So cool. yeah, there you, just, you want to just lean that? Sure. Up? Just, just lean it towards you. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. That'll nail it now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, when, when we talk, and, and this uh, an, another term that is used. So again, we have geographic information science, so mm-hmm. GIS. And within that, remote sensing. And then within remote sensing, you can talk of airborne remote sensing mm-hmm. and satellite remote sensing. And satellite remote sensing is usually uh, referred to as Earth observation. So okay. because it's satellites that are observing the Earth, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Um, but yeah. It's so pretty, it's, good, it's good. We got a pretty good uh, scope of like we covered all the all the all the resolutions like I mean with a drone you can get down to like millimeter if you wanted to not that that's Absolutely. necessary but then you yeah. go all the way up to 30 meter resolution at, oh, at, in the satellites yeah. or, or higher I'm sure if you want yeah but. we have uh, from say a kilometer yeah uh, special resolution that would be for example what would that be for yeah yeah if you had a claw like one yeah. like, like a, a pixel that's one kilometer one kilometer like what would that be what would you get from that? Well, you get large area coverage. Like, you I think have. you could almost, like, scan the entire country almost in, but what like, would two you, passes. But so, what information could you get from that? Because if the pixel, that's, that's you're averaging, in that pixel, you're averaging out a lot of different colors and stuff, right? Yeah. So. It'd be more broad level detail of the landscape. You know, if we're going to talk about forest inventory and you're going to do a, uh, say, like a, like a, like all a species composition, but yeah. it wouldn't be down to the species level. It right. would be more like a conifer stand. Okay. That we could possibly map or deciduous. So you could say it's mostly conifer in here, mostly deciduous yeah. here. You could kind of say where the natural subregions are, that kind of stuff. That's exactly okay. it. Yeah. Okay. So is that, uh, and yeah, you said you can get, like, I think you can get the 30 meter stuff for free from the government, right? Yeah. Well, that, that, <laughs> that, that is uh, another trend. So uh, one trend in, in this blurring, there is another trend in, in remote sensing that has been the kind of, democratization of the discipline so nowadays anyone can do remote sensing right like 40 years ago you had to be in a federal lab in a university or a a consulting firm right and you had to pay uh, well i i think it was say five thousand dollars per per one of these scenes oh Uh, really yeah so it's gotten uh, a lot cheaper than now (laughs) uh, now is basically for free so in 2008 there was a an important landmark decision by the u.s uh, geological survey Mm -hmm. that they freed the landsat archive not only they freed the the archive but they said for now on we're not going to charge for so that that created a, a big revolution because uh, one uh, 
before that, imagine uh, you're trying to do a kind of a multi-temporal study where you are going to assess how this portion of the land base change over time. Yeah. You want to see the cap blocks, the fires. Yeah. That would cost a lot, a lot of money. Right. After that, basically, you could do it for free. Right. And and so that that was a big change. And to give you uh, a figure, um, before that, I think that on average, the, the number of scenes, so each individual 180 by 180 kilometers uh, land-size scenes, there were across the globe 25,000 that were uh, ordered. Mm. 25,000 in Jeez. one year. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the figure now is a million every <laughs> month. A million Lancer scenes are downloaded from different places yeah. every, so for the, every month. So, so it's orders of magnitude. Right. And of course, that has revolutionized the field no? because yeah, now there are way more people doing remote sensing and way more data right. available. So, so that's that's been a big change. So that's mostly what you guys work with is the 30-meter yeah. satellite stuff. You don't use a lot of aerial imagery or any of that? Not so much the aerial, but even with the satellites, like other, there's other government agencies now that are providing that free data. One is the Sentinel-2 satellite. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, similar spectral uh, characteristics to the Landsat, mm -hmm. but it's also free. Okay. Um, and it's it comes from the European Space Agency, nice. uh, as opposed to the USGS with Landsat. So, uh, one of the advantages of the Sentinel too is that uh, you get the twenty meter uh, data as opposed to thirty. Yep. And they also have two satellites uh, in space that are orbiting in on tandem with each other. So, every five days, you can actually get a. Uh, a, uh, like an image. A stereo pair yeah. type thing? No. Or you mean just like a... No, yeah. just it, the satellite will go over on its path over the exact same area every five days. So gotcha. you get higher repeat coverage uh, okay. than you do, say, with yeah. Landsat, which What's is about the Landsat? two How weeks. About two oh, weeks, okay. I think. 16 yeah. days. So, yeah. like, Landsat is... That, that's the other, another trend, not that we have way more satellites than uh, a few years ago. And yeah. uh, so it's... Um, like Lanza, you have 16 day repeat with now there are constellations, uh, Pleiades, and, and Bunch the of Sentinel. Ones. Yeah. Uh, well, when you go below, say, 10 meters, usually it's for pay. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, Sentinel would be probably the, the most, uh, the, the, the satellite with the most spatial resolution that you can get for free. Right. Below that, so under ten meters, probably you 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 have Start to paying. pay, you know, like Rapid Eye, and this uh, Pleiades, mm -hmm. and now, well, and this is an upcoming re revolution. Maybe we can talk later. Yep. And but um, you have this CubeSat. Uh, there are satellites that you can launch for uh, a quarter million dollars uh -huh. from the International Space Station. With a spring that is gonna just a uh, spring, you launch yeah. it into space with a spring. Well, you bring it to the International Space Station with uh -huh. a shuttle, and then they have a, a launcher yeah. the, that is gonna kind of aim to put the thing in into a lower orbit. And, but it's and using mechanical energy, not like it's not using like a rocket or anything to get no, it into space. No, I, I've seen I've seen a, a an animation. It is not that's the insane. real thing. <laughs> 
It's a spring. Yeah. <laughs> how much? Kind of, how much like it's, power must it's be like a that? catapult? Yeah. Yeah. It's, no a little, it's a little box, so and they can be assembled. Yeah. And they are ten by ten by ten centimeters each cube, and you can assemble uh, different units to create your own cubesat. And they have their own uh, solar panels and their own instruments. Okay, so the satellite itself that you're launching is—you said it's—you take yeah. ten by ten pieces and you can make, you can add a bunch of them together. Yeah, to make they're one. modular. They're modular. So do you send yeah. them up into space in ten by ten, like in just the cubes? I I don't you know. know. If they are already assembled when they travel in the shuttle to the ISS, or or they are assembled there. I I, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that. Uh, with that, and then there is this uh, Elon Musk uh, SpaceX. Okay. So this you said. This, okay, so sorry. So yeah. you said that they travel. So, oh, so they, tr- they they do travel in a shuttle to the ISS. Like, where's the spring? It sounded like the spring. No, no, the no. The, the spring is in, in the in the station. It's oh, in, see, I, I yeah. thought you were saying that. No, it was, it's a, it's kind of a catapult. You put the imagine this box. Yeah. You put it there and then the catapult is going to be aimed to a particular orbit and, and it's going to be... From the ISS, though. And it's going to be launched oh. from there. Yes. I yes, thought yes. you were saying that no. they're launching it from the surface oh, no, of no, the no, Earth no. into space. <laughs> no, I'm that, like, what that, is that? What would well, that take? <laughs> it, in theory, that's possible. And the thing is, I it's blurry in my mind. I don't remember for re- sure, but I think that there are people actually working on that thinking on that because basically the the act of launching a satellite is basically you throw a stone yeah it describes a parable right right so you had to throw that stone uh, with enough force that the parable is gonna land beyond the earth right and then you get it's, that object in an orbit. It's basically That's, falling yeah. infinitesimally around the Earth. Yeah, yeah from the yeah. speed. Yeah, so in, we're getting in, carried away. In theory, <laughs> in theory, that's possible. But yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. So let let's rewind to to. But yeah, to be, the it'll be interesting to yeah. see when, uh, like, as time goes on. Right now, mm-hmm. you say the thirty centimeter, maybe even twenty centimeter, or twenty sorry, twenty meter resolution is free. As time goes on, you know that it's going to get finer, right? And if we can get like thirty centimeter resolution for free in 10 years or 20 years that'll be insane because that'll change things drastically i know right now like we were just talking to derek at green lake here and then and he was saying that the right now for that resolution you're paying as much as 10 times as much Mm. to get that resolution as a satellite as opposed to aerial photography but if like eventually that's going to catch up and that's yeah i don't think they're gonna get for free but Mm -hmm. uh it's going to be part of a service. Right. So the idea of all these companies that are working in, in CubeSat, so yeah. there are companies that uh, what they plan is to send a constellation of these CubeSat, 60 or 100, or, and they are going to be around, uh, circling around the Earth in, in different orbits mm-hmm. so that if there is any event, and actually there is, a, there is a company from Seattle that uh, has some social media analytics that they are going to be analyzing real-time uh, social media traffic mm. and when there is something happening that uh, say a hurricane or yep. earthquake or a terrorist attack or yep. anything they can de- they can deploy their their satellites uh, i mean not deploy but they can aim their sensor to the area so that they obtain real-time imagery and yeah. video some That's of cool. these companies uh, are offering video that's awesome <laughs> yeah so 
down the road, yeah, I see. I don't see that it's gonna be more like a service. Of course, yeah. And but the price, uh, the hope of these companies is that they're gonna have so much, uh, so many users mm-hmm. that they are gonna be able to offer all these uh, services at a very low price. If so, they can compete yeah. with aerial imagery and that kind of stuff. Then yeah, they'll do well yeah. for sure, absolutely, because yeah. that's instantly yeah. available, right? Yeah. So yeah. Well, let's get into the details. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we've been talking a while already. <laughs> um, yeah, we can, I guess we can start with Rob. Sure. Uh, so you, you're using. Uh, so explain what you're doing with the. You're, you're working with fires and trying to map out uh, the fires in Canada. We're yeah. using uh, the Landsat uh, satellite imagery, right? Right. So, uh, so yeah. So explain what's going on there. What do I do? Yeah. Okay. Well, I just want to make clear sort of start. I'm not actually when I say I'm mapping fires, I'm not mapping real time fire activity, right. right? So what's going on right now? Uh, burning in BC or even Alberta, that's not uh, our project. We're doing mm-hmm. end of season fire mapping. So this is post fires. So it's the burn, not yeah, the fire. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, yeah. And this, the whole objective of this is for, is for end of year reporting. How much, uh, area burned in Canada yeah. uh, from forest fires. And one of the satellites that we're using is the Landsat, uh, satellite again, right. because the data is free. We got the coverage every two weeks, yep. which, um, uh, which we we use um, typically we, we we're going to acquire that imagery I guess like in the fall time okay uh, once the fires are out and mm-hmm. we typically get more cloud free imagery and then yep. we'll start doing our data collections um, but the project that all this feeds into is it's called the National Burned Area Composite okay. Project and the Landsat data that we use to generate our fire maps feed into this but as well as agency uh, fire polygons. So when I say agency, this is like the provincial and the territorial and even Parks Canada. Okay. Okay. They're responsible for doing all their own fire maps. Um, And each year we get their data and we do almost like a quality check of it. And where we find that some of their polygons may have missed some of the burns. So they had some omission error or even some commission error. We take the Landsat data and we remap those fires to improve the burned area boundary that we then improve the burned area estimation. Okay. Um, and, and all that information that we take with the Landsat and then with the agency data, that's actually done pretty good because I think even before we were started this interview, we were talking Alberta where they use aerial photography, like mm-hmm. they do an excellent job. Mm-hmm. And those type of polygons we use in this product to get the national estimate. Gotcha. It's just the more of the broad area delineations where say water and unburned islands forest islands aren't removed right okay that's when that's part of the net calculation of burned area we take that out with our landsat delineation mapping so so overall we get a more improved burned area estimation of the country okay than what say agencies uh generate alone on their products so do you um do you also map out the ones like say lowell does the does the ones here for alberta like he did the the big richardson fire anything over a specific spec he actually goes through manually and delineates it by hand Uh, well soft copy on a computer but um do you do those ones as well or do you just supplement your information with his so our data is more complimenting that so we'll, we'll we'll take that data because we know that's very good yeah uh we can't compete with soft soft copy photogrammetry with a landsat so um, so we will use that data as part of the burned area estimates, but mm-hmm. in provinces like, um, or territories like Northwest territories, yeah. we actually collaborate, uh, with that government agency quite a bit. Um, their protocol for fire mapping has 
tended to be more aerial surveys. Okay. Uh, so flying in an airplane with a tablet or back in the days, probably a hard copy map. Right. And then you would almost delineate on this uh, tablet or map what the burned area is. So just a rough, a rough, raw delineation. Yeah. And right. what happens is that you overestimate the fires, right? Is that the, that's the general trend is it's overestimated? It's overestimated because you're not removing water. You're not oh. removing unburned forest islands because when a fire burns, yeah. Okay, based on the fuel conditions and wind directions and all that, mm-hmm. okay, we get different burn severities within that fire event. Yeah. And not everything burns. So Right. Um so working with the Northwest Territories, we're actually um we're updating all their fire polygons okay. uh, back to 1986. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to have this 30-year time history of fire polygons that are going to be based just on Landsat okay. uh, data alone that's going to have the water removed, going to have the unburned islands removed. Okay, and this is going to improve their historical records of burned area mm-hmm. uh, in the territories, but it's also going to improve the national estimate okay. of burned area, which will be part of the national burned area composite. Right, that makes sense. So uh, yeah. how long has this been going on? Like this. Well, we started this project back in 2004, right. um, and this was to, the project was developed for, uh, for a carbon accounting mm-hmm. um, that CFS does every year for national reporting. Mm-hmm. And it was the same idea back then in 2004 was that the data that they had then um, could be improved. Like the burned area estimations could always be improved. And we wanted the best burned area estimations so we can get better estimates of what's going with carbon emissions. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So this project's been going on for just over 10 years. And uh, we still continue it uh, each year. We still report uh, to the carbon accounting team mm-hmm. with our product. Um, but we've also made it publicly available. And this is just recent. Um, if people want to download this product, it's available on the Canadian Wildland Forest Information website. Mm-hmm. This is a CFS website. And if they go on there, they'll find the National Burned Area Composite. And it's polygons. Yeah. All right. So, so they're going to download a shapefile for each year mm-hmm. uh, that's going to have the polygons based on our Landsat delineations and the agencies. Perfect. But uh, yeah, I just I, want to throw in, too, that it's not like just burned area, but it's attribution as well that characterizes the fire right. that we have. So, for example, start dates and end dates. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask yeah. you about that. Yeah, How how do you go? Because if you've got a two-week flight, so like say the satellite comes around every two right. weeks, right? So, and say sometime in that interim, a fire has started. Yeah. Do you, What's the accuracy of the start date? Well. And how do you, how do you calculate sure, that? Sure. Well. Fire hot. Okay. Well, we get start and end dates actually from two sources. Okay. Okay. One's from satellites, which mm-hmm. is where you're going with. But that we use the MODIS uh, hotspots uh, for that. The MODIS and hotspots are so, the so so it comes from a MODIS satellite. Right. And that's daily coverage. Oh. Okay. All right. So gotcha. it's not like Landsat where it's every two weeks. It's more of a coarse resolution. Gotcha. Uh, satellite. So a hotspot is basically based on thermal. Is a thermal sensor that is gonna give you in any given day pixels and the pixel are 500 meters no uh, pixels where there is a, a peak of emissivity in the thermal okay, and, so, and so it's a suspected area where there is a fire going on gotcha. sometimes it could be uh, flaring mm-hmm. or it could be a uh, agricultural fields um, but uh, Does it have to be a pretty it, big fire for it to come up on there? Yeah, I don't know what the sensitivity of, of that is, but uh, when there is a big bigger fire, than, bigger you, than the pixel yeah, size. Yeah, and the pixel so, size is five hundred meters. You said five hundred. Yeah, I think yeah. the thermal is five hundred. Okay. That's one of those sensors that has different pixel sizes based on the spectral yeah. bands. But I think, yeah. uh, I think with the thermal band, it's it's it probably 500. Is. Yeah. 
But anyways, what we get from that is it's actually a point. So mm -hmm. the MODIS people, they'll process the data and they, they get a point yeah. location. With that point, then you get the date that it was acquired. Gotcha. So okay. over a fire event that, you know, maybe goes two weeks or even a month, we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of points mm -hmm. over this uh, fire. Right. And what we do to get the start and end date is, is really we just take this, the first point and the last point. That and sense. that gives us the approximation of the start and end date. And I imagine this is for, like you were saying, pl remote places where there aren't fire towers and there aren't people... Like, you know what I mean? Like Alberta, we get start and end date because there's fire towers everywhere. And there literally be a person in a tower yes. that goes, there's a fire there. It started at 11.02 a.m. Yeah. And But like this is for places where we don't have that resource, yeah. I'm guessing. Well, we do it across the country. So right. if we have hot spots over a fire event, you know, we'll take that first and last hit. Gotcha. And we'll get the start date. But also, too, what you mentioned, like the human observation, like that's important. Mm -hmm. Because there is air in, the, uh, in those fire hot spots, uh, whether it be cloud coverage. That maybe the sensor, you know, or the thermal energy wasn't uh, being detected because of clouds. Right. We may not get a point. So we, we take both in this mm -hmm. product. We'll take the human observation mm -hmm. of a start and end date, if available. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if available. <laughs> or we'll take, you know, from the satellites as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um I know, actually, we'll, we'll make sure to get that uh, that link. I'll throw it in the show notes okay. so that people can just go right to it if they want to get to it. Um as far as burn severity or yeah. burn severity, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how is that? Like, I, I just, uh, for myself, I know how, for example, we do it with aerial imagery because we have 30, like 30 centimeter resolution. We can see if the fire has been underneath the canopy and it's burned out the, the understory and not the overstory. We can see if it's, it's burned deep, if it's burned, you know what I mean? We can see yeah. that really, really easily. I'm, I, how do you figure that out with 30 meter uh, resolution is how, how, how do you sort out burn severity? Sure. Um, well, my experience with burn severity, I just want to define when I say burn severity, what that is. Yeah. That's the ecological impact on the vegetation after a fire event. Right. And burn severity can be kind of, in, in, after that, it's like two ways. You can either do immediate burn severity, so that would be a, at the end of that fire season. Yeah. What burned, or one year after. Right. All right. And my experience is that what we, how we estimate burn severity, it's through models of uh, ground data. Okay. And our ground data is based on the composite burn index or CBI. Okay. So that's where we'll get that ground estimate of burn severity. And they measure, you go into the field and you'll measure what the burn is on the, the canopy mm. and then on like the stem, so the inner layer, and then on the ground. Mm -hmm. And you can tally all this up to get an estimate of what that burn severity gotcha. is. Gotcha. So you actually have to go out and, and, yeah. and get that information. Yeah. Okay. So with that ground data then, and we're going to have different levels of burn severity over the fire event because you're going to sample that that fire event in multiple locations. Yeah. For people all that right. don't know, fires are, yeah, like you were saying before, they're, they're sporadic, right? Like yeah. You have a big giant fire, but it'll miss patches. It'll, it'll yeah. jump. It'll do all kinds of weird stuff. So it's not yeah. like it's one big consistent severity throughout. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then we'll, where the remote sensing come in, as you talk about the Landsat, is then, you know, we'll, we'll model that CBI to an indice that we'll create on the Landsat. And the most popular one that's used is called the... Um, uh, Normalized, normalized burn, burn ratio. Okay. Okay. And this uses the the infrared information and the shortwave infrared information okay. on a satellite. And it's usually done on a pre and post fire image, so we get that that change detection or the, the change on the image mm -hmm. that occurred. And based on the MBR, so we'll create then a model. We'll relate CBI as a function of the delta MBR. Mm -hmm. Create a model, apply it across that burned area on the image and then we can model pretty much cbi ground estimates across the image okay 
And the, okay, cool. Yeah. So that's so you're doing this everywhere. So it's getting um, yeah. So they so it's used mostly for you said for carbon accounting is the main carbon accounting is most interested in burned area. Okay. Okay. So there's the like where it burned and how yeah. much burned. Right. Um, burn severity is actually. It, I think it's still almost like in the it's it's not in the research mode, but it's not used. It's not being done operationally, okay. like burned area mapping. Yeah, um, it's still I think small projects looking at uh, uh, you know localized regions, developing yep. models and applying them. But where we want to go with that is creating burn severity across the entire country. Gotcha. Okay, and that's going to involve you know it's going to get more complex because. We'll have to have different models for different regions of the country mm-hmm. uh, because where a fire burns in Northwest Territories will have different ground characteristics of burn severity as opposed to, say, somewhere out east. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Cool. Uh, because the application of, uh, of these burn severity products that we haven't included yet in, in this product. So this is a plan for the future. No? That, uh, now in, in that shape file that Rob mentioned, there is no column about this delta MBR, oh, I see. but this is something that we are considering. You're considering, okay. And and the, the utility of that would be that down the road, imagine that you have a big fire, then you can stratify the fire by areas where the severity was higher, mm-hmm. and maybe all the seed banks have been destroyed. Right. And then you need to supplement uh, nature with some kind of uh, aid yeah. To to need to seed it or yeah. plant it or yeah. do some kind of action to help the forest grow back without yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. that and and then for doing retrospective studies of, of this given fire twenty years ago, how has this index evolved through hmm. time, and so that we can say, well, you know, when the DMBR is this, we can assume that there is a regenerating force there. Yeah. However, that's. Uh, the relation between this uh, composite and burn index that uh, Rob uh, mentioned and, and and the satellite data yeah. is very variable depending on, on many factors that are not directly related with the burn severity per se. Gotcha. So, okay. yeah. is this all? I, I never even really asked. So, like, when you guys when you're delineating, like the the fires being delineated out and, and attributed, is that all automated or is that done by a person? Yeah, no, we do. We have an automated procedure with huh. the Landsat. We take the pre and post fire imagery on the Landsat, yeah. and it's run through a system. Um, the the actual thresholding, so you get so you get your your pre and post image. We do uh, we well we compute the uh, normalized burn ratio in each. Get the then delta uh, normalized, normalized burn, ratio. burn ratio is what right. So that's what we were talking about. We're doing that's burn the, severity. Oh right, the burn. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So just that index alone is, is just it does a really good job of pulling out fires. Right on okay. landsat imagery. So then when you do the pre and post, so before a fire and after a fire, then we see that change on the image. Yeah. Based on the delta MBR. Okay. All right, and then we have this thresholding exercise uh, again that's automated, but basically it'll do the delineation on that on that MBR. And it'll attribute it as well, then all that. Yeah, well, yeah. So then we get the delineation of the fire event, which becomes a polygon. Yeah. And then the attribution is attached just based on association, say, with fire hotspots. Yeah. Or we'll add that in based on what we get from human observation. Like another one we didn't mention was fire cause. Yeah, that's another attribute that we add to this product. Right. Um, But that is not... Detected with remote sensing, that mm-hmm. comes Outside that data. comes from remote sensing, yeah. or sorry, from human <laughs> observation. But so. that's one of those things, though. Like remote sensing, it's I think a lot of people 
when they hear about uh you know what i mean like when they hear them bringing on researchers and stuff like that they go like oh well they have no real real life experience and it's all data and it's not it's a model and it doesn't reflect real life and i said well no that's not true right like it's i think people get carried away with that and they they, they don't realize that all of this research and all this data is being supplemented with real ground data to make sure that it is correlated right like yeah. i think people they, they, they miss that they think that you know what I mean? That we're uncomfortable being outside and we just sit in our computer and, and punch away and don't ever like correlate the real world with the data, right? So it's 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 good to know that obviously, I mean I know that, but I some people forget that, right? So it's all being correlated and related because that's ultimately what we want, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. In any given remote sensing project, you need ground data because Always. without ground data, you cannot anchor the, your your remote sensing data to a real attribute phenomenon that you are unless you are directly directly measuring it with uh, your remote sensing instrument and an example of that would be height with lidar mm. so yes in the case of let's LIDAR, explain lidar yeah. real quick because i don't think we've done that yet okay so lidars yeah yeah so lidar is a, is a relatively new technology that started in in the 21st century to be used airborne so you have a plane that has an instrument that basically has a, 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 a range finder right. that is sending pulses of um, uh, collimated light so so very concentrated beams of uh, light it's called a laser for fun's yeah. sake laser. <laughs> yeah. and and so the, so they are so concentrated that that the footprint of one of these pulses of light is about 20 centimeters on right. the, the ground. So this pulse uh, uh, bounce uh, it gets a 20 uh, reaches some, some targets on the right. ground, and part of that energy is bounced back to uh, a sensor that is mounted together with the instrument. And depending on the intensity of this rebound, you, you are going to create, uh, there are two types of LiDAR sensors, those that create a waveform that is a continuum, basically it's a count of the photons that are coming back from this pulse. Okay. And then you have a profile because you can translate, <coughs> because the speed of light is constant, you can tr translate the time of reception into a distance. Right. And then you have others that are discrete, where you had to have a threshold of a number of photons, and then it's going to create a point. Right. A point meaning that uh, there is a target that created a, a return that is intense enough to be registered, mm -hmm. and that creates uh, an X, Y, and Z of that point. Right. And you get a bunch of them, and that's why we call them point clouds. Right. And this point cloud is basically a 3D model of the terrain and of the vegetation above them. Mm -hmm. And with that, you can create uh, a model of the ground and also a model of the canopy mm -hmm. and of the trees. So in this case, if you have enough uh, density of these points, you can actually measure the, tri the, the height of an individual tree right. by measuring, well, the, the top of the tree and the base of that tree yeah. that gives you the height and so actually yeah so basically yeah. it's a sim it's similar uh, model for people that might not is like uh similar to like sonar right but it's, it's yeah. obviously sonars with sound and this is with light yeah so you're just measuring the the amount of distance that's being the time it takes for the for the pulse to bounce back to the plane mm -hmm. and that tells you how tall it is and then when you get a whole area say you get a you know a kilometer by kilometer stretch you can compile all that data turn all the bottom ones into say that the bottom ones are the ground and the top ones are the top of the vegetation 
and that's basically and you have a bunch in between that tells you lateral branching and other stuff too but yeah right. so basically once uh, take this discrete uh, lidar instrument that are the most common for for forestry work um once you have this uh, point cloud of uh, of points then mm-hmm. there are algorithms that will uh, take the the morphology, the, the shape of that cloud, and are going to be able to differentiate, okay, this point came from the ground, this other point came from a, a, a piece of vegetation. Ground, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so once you classify this point cloud into ground and non-ground, yep. you use the ground points, and then you interpolate them and into a grid or a raster, mm-hmm. and then you have your bare ground model. Yeah, And that, then you can use that in turn to uh, what we call normalize a point cloud that is normally the set in the x y set of of a point and refers to the height above the geoid or the ellipsoid so above the mean sea level Um, but um, when you normalize basically you you subtract that set from from the uh, elevation of the ground Mm -hmm. at that point and that with that, you create basically what we call a canopy height model, right. where you have a raster where the, each pixel has a uh, brightness value, right. the height of the vegetation in this particular yeah. uh, piece of land that can be as small as uh, 25 centimeters yeah. a meter. It's really and, good. Like we, yeah. Well, we use it here all the time, right? Yeah. Like I use canopy yeah. height models to determine it helps me when I'm interpreting uh, vegetation heights and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's supplementary with visual, but because like you said, it's not necessarily like, I can't say the very top heights of the LIDAR are a hundred percent the top of the tree. Cause it might've missed it and got a lateral branch or something, but it's close. Yeah. yeah. And especially when it's over a huge area, you know yeah. that it's going to hit some of them are going to be at the top of the tree and you can yeah. average it out. And, but yeah, the information that you get from that and like looking at the, at the bare earth, model mm. that you get like you turn it into mm. a hill shade so it mm. actually you can add shadows and stuff right so we mm. can understand it and that it makes it really visually pleasing to look at like you can oh, yeah. see 10 centimeter skiffs in the ground from where the from where a bulldozer has, has gone through the forest right yeah. and, and pulled yeah. up the 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 the, the, the uh, lfh layer yeah. right like the top of the soil so like it's, it's amazing that the the intricacies and the like the information you can get from lidar alone yeah. Yeah. not not even supplementing it with photography or satellite imagery or any of that so it's yeah it's wild yeah yeah and you have again you have a because normally these acquisitions are done at say 100 uh, sorry 800 or a thousand meters above uh, ground level mm-hmm. and and what we didn't mention is this uh, laser it has a scanner there is a mirror that is bouncing the the beam is bouncing across the path of the plane so that's why you can create a, a, a grid. So it's not it's not like the beam is always pointing down the plane. Right. The beam is directed by a mechanical mirror oh, in okay. different direction across. So the, it's like the, yeah. the instead of the beam being pointed straight down, always like at ninety degrees from the plane, it's going. It's it's kind of swaying a little bit. Uh, and so you're hitting different angles and yeah. stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, and that's why uh, this kind of uh, remote sensing is also called airborne laser scanning because ah. it's a scanner it's actually the instrument has a scanner because it's sending the the beam across and so back and forth back and forth and, and, and taking bearing. advantage okay. of the motion of the plane you can create a continuous swath over which you have data 
Right. And and this is used for everything. Like, I mean, we don't just yeah. use it for natural resources. People use it for, for engineering purposes, for bridges, Absolutely. and for, like, the depth yeah. of whatever, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's used... It's, the, 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 the applications LIDAR, are endless. Yeah. LIDAR is another one more of this. There, there's been so many advances in remote sensing. And LIDAR, in, in, especially for forestry and, and vegetation applications, have yeah. re- changed the game completely. Now oh, you can sure. do... Uh, very precise uh, forest inventories um, at the individual tree level, no. So, yeah. and this is what I'm coming back to what uh, I was mentioning before. So, normally, when you do your, when the goal is to create a bare ground model, you fly high enough, uh, and and you're gonna get about one return per square meter. Okay. So. With that, you can still derive stand-level variables of oh, yeah. a forest, but not tree-level variables. But right. if you have, say, more than a dozen returns per square meter, then you can measure uh, very well the height of trees to the point that there's been studies where they have had uh, expert forester measuring the height of standing trees with a vertex. Yeah. And then they have, and they have acquired this airborne LiDAR also. Uh, and then they had chopped down a number of trees, measured them with a tape, yeah. and the measurement from the airborne lidar was more accurate than from from the ground. So, right, because so, they'll do destructive sampling, yeah. cut it down, yeah. and then make sure. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's the interesting thing too is that yeah, for, for even from a ground model, a lot of foresters out there measuring trees and stuff like that, they'll think, oh, well, I'm on the ground. I'm, I nailed the height. Like I used a vertex and a laser, and it, it's hmm. it's perfect. It's like, well, no, if the tree is leaning towards you, you're gonna screw it up it's leaning away if you're the distance was wrong or there's i i know uh, uh derek was talking about one time he was out in the bush with the government and, and they had i think they said they had 10 different or something like that they had a bunch of different ways of measuring the tree they used a clino clinometer they used a mm-hmm. vertex they used laser a bunch of different things and they had like 10 different people try them out and they all got to within like two meters of one another of this relatively mature tree and they cut it down, and it was perfectly in the middle of what everyone thought, right? It was like the average, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show that when you're out there, just because you're out, you're going to be, there's, there's a variance there as well. So, yeah, the LIDAR, it, the only way you can really know for sure what's better on the ground or, or, or the remote sensing is by destructive sampling and actually no. cutting it down and measuring it's it with not. a tape. So it's, I think people forget that. They yeah. think, well, no, that this is what I said it was on the ground, and the LIDAR says this, I'm going to take the ground. It's like, well, was that person tired that day where they maybe not paying attention where they instead of being 10 meters away where they ate like all those things right so it's but it's 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 interesting that yeah all that kind of stuff adds into it eventually right so and yeah one of our applications of the lidar data is that <clears throat> like we don't we use it because when we do like mapping a forest inventory this is like a large area mm-hmm. mapping like we do projects in northern canada so very large areas um but we'll use the lidar data as a sampling tool Okay. So we're not going to have complete LiDAR coverage flown across all over. It's Northern. expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's very expensive, yeah. right? But if we have a like a swath of LiDAR that's flown over an area yeah. and we can generate height estimates off of that, yeah. we then sample those, say, pseudo-height estimates or the you know the height estimates we get on the LiDAR data, yeah. sample those and use those as like a predictive model to then generate height estimates across, say, a Landsat image, which is going to have that larger area footprint. Gotcha. Because yeah. I know, like Alberta, like we're lucky enough to, like roughly ten years ago, Alberta flew all yeah. the whole province with lidar. So we have ten-year-old lidar for the whole province. Luckily, that gives us all our bare earth and our crown, or 
uh, county hate models and stuff. But is that not true of the other provinces? It hasn't been, or territories and stuff? No, I, no. I think Alberta is the only one that I know. Uh, uh, the federal government, like CFS, has collected LIDAR data right. across the country, but not the wall-to-wall coverage. I'm surprised that BC doesn't have it, because, I mean, they have a, a giant forest industry, and it's surprising that they don't have that information, right? I would think that, that but I guess, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know, but uh, it will come down the road, because yeah. uh, wherever there is uh, forestry activity that can pay for this data yeah i think it's cost effective for for most uh operators to have that information because one of the things for example i i, I remember uh, uh, that um proving alpac have for example when cutting blocks mm-hmm. you you base your block on the avi polygon mm-hmm. and then you estimate what what is the stock there and then you're when, estimating volumes yeah. and how much wood you're going to get off yeah. of it. And then and, yeah. when the truck uh, comes, uh, the hauling, the, the, what you get is not what you thought you would get. You you can no. get more or less, and and of course that makes difficult planning operations. So yeah. if you have lighter, then you can plan your operations way more precisely. Totally. And of course, uh, I think that the money that you invest in that pays off. Well, especially yeah. with the old inventories too, where we were using. hard copy stereoscopes and you're just using a pen and a paper and all you have is the stereoscope and that's it there's no other information now with soft copy i've got lidar right so i've got the i already know how tall the trees are automatically i don't have to i don't have to guess and then i've got i know where the the, the earth is right and i can see it's I i can zoom in and out easily with the soft copy versus the the hard copy image right and then all kinds of things, right? I can mess with the color balancing to, to bring out, make pine pop or to make aspen pop or to make larch pop. I can do, I can do all kinds of things, right? And I have all the fire files, all the, all the uh, anthropogenic disturbance layers, all that kind of stuff. And like the, so the AVI has gotten way better because of remote sensing and stuff, right? So now we're adding like ecocytes into there. So how moist is the soil? How much nutrients are in the soil? And how does that relate to the aspect how does that relate to slope and everything else, right? So it's, yeah, it's only with this information. It's because of LIDAR and all that other kind of stuff that this is getting so much better. And the information we are getting is getting so precise that, like you said, we can estimate volumes to a much closer degree of, of, of uh, reality, I guess, Yeah. right? So um, so you, uh, I guess the, the, the one other thing that is uh, – uh, that's that's used i guess that's 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 kind of a new thing coming out is the um photogrammetry right mm-hmm. so that's basically you're deriving heights of things from just the photography right they're pixel matching so yeah. maybe we can get into that a little bit just explain kind of what that is yeah. that, i know that's kind of a new yeah. a new technology yeah no and and this is again one one other revolution in 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 the field and and so this started not long ago actually a few years ago, and there was um, uh, this structure from motion uh, workflow in in computer vision that then we saw could be applied to remote sensing images. Right. And basically what it does is um, it matches uh, different photos that overlap. Yeah. So uh, basically the algorithm, you know, in photogrammetry, you had to have the 
exterior orientation parameters of a photo. So basically, you had to know the X, Y, and Z of the camera at yeah. the point at the moment it sh it tri it was triggered. Yeah, and the aim of the camera. So this uh, three the angle angles, at which yeah. it's taking the picture. Yeah, yeah. The, the aim of the camera relative to to three angles. Right, and these algorithms can adjust and, and align the photos automatically so that you don't need to provide these parameters. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. So that's somehow it's hard to believe because right. you, you just throw a bunch of photos. Yeah. We have a, a software that is called Photoscan. Yeah. And we throw a bunch of photos and what it comes after well it takes a, a while it's a very intensive uh, process computing, right of course computing wise but it comes up with the photos aligned perfectly and so once you have that by simple parallax uh, aero triangulation you can derive the the x y and z of salient points in the image so if you see for example you have a a photo of a cap lock yep. and you have a, a tree stump here, you're going to see this tree stump from, from at least five or six different photographs. So the software is going to start doing triangulation and in the end it's going to come up with an X, Y, Z for this stump. Right. And so it knows from the multiple images that it's pixel matching that one stump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And knows because of that, it can triangulate yeah. the the height of it, the elevation, the all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. the location of that precise point, and it can do it for not not the stamp per se, because we are talking of centimeters or sometimes, as you mentioned earlier, millimeters. Yeah. So pixels. We have taken photographs that you can see the leaves of moss. Yeah, so <laughs> moss. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's insane. So, so you're you could identify yeah. species of moss from. Y yeah, you you, you could. <laughs> nice. You could. And 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 the bottom line is, in the end, the end process of this is that you create a point cloud, like for lidar. Yeah. But uh, I said earlier that in lidar normally you have a few returns or a few points per square meter. Yeah. And when you're lucky, you have a dozen or or like that. Yeah. With this technology, you can create a point cloud so dense that they have thousands, thousands of ten of thousands of points per square meter. That's, That's pretty amazing. So basically, it's a it's a three D model so detailed that uh, that basically you you see the forest. Yeah. You see the forest, but of course the it's not all so rosy because the problem, the main problem with photogrammetry, uh, with photogrammetric point clouds, uh, they are called, is that um, because of the nature of the sensor, there is a simple photographic camera. Yeah. If you have a dense forest, obviously you cannot see the understory right. and you cannot see the ground. If you cannot see the ground, then you need an ancillary source of information about the ground to be able to normalize yeah. that point cloud so that you can measure heights. Right. So it's a supplementary technology for yeah. supplementing lidar, right? So yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. In open forest, like, uh, and, and we're going to be starting to do some work about that in in the northwest territories. In, in open forest, when you can, where you can see the base of a tree from above, mm -hmm. then you can. You don't need a, a pre-existing bare ground model from lidar. Gotcha. But if you don't have it, if the forest is too dense, then you need you need a 
digital elevation model to be able to normalize and derive yeah. and derive metrics. But there's been already a few papers that have been doing uh, comparing photogrammetric point clouds with lighter point clouds yeah. and deriving uh, forest attribute right. uh, attributes from that. And and the results come very similar. The, yeah, and, they're great. Uh, yeah, like it's it's yeah. amazing and how cheap it is relative yeah. to lidar too, right? So it's, yeah, uh, and and so again we we talk about the democratization of uh, of remote sensing. So when in <coughs> two thousand eight you had this, uh, uh, the Lance Archive was made freely available. Mm -hmm. That was a, a game changer. But now, not only on the downstream side of things. Now in the upstream, now we acquire our own data. We go to the field and we acquire our own data. That, yeah. That's pretty amazing because this, uh, with with the drone technology, no? yeah. because now drones, um, basically you can uh, pre-program a flight in the lab yeah. and then you go to the field. You basically, it's not that simple, but basically you push a button, the drone is going to take off follow predetermined flight paths and yeah. acquire photography at regular intervals so that you have a, a, a great overlap mm -hmm. that you can apply then this structure from motion uh, workflow and yeah. derive these photogrammetric point clouds. That's pretty amazing because it's incredible. Yeah, the drone, the drone technology I know is huge. A lot of people are getting really jacked mm. up about drones mm. and like how cool it looks, right? But this is something that I pointed out before that I thought was interesting. I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about was. Um, it's it's I see a lot of presentations when I go to professional workshops and stuff of people like even we have drones here and we're we're testing them out and mm -hmm. seeing what their application is right and and we have guys doing the photogrammetric point clouds and everything and what a lot of people do and I, I'll see these companies show up and they'll do a, a presentation and look at this video look at this point cloud look at how pretty it is look we can we can automate uh, species identification because the the point cloud is so dense that we can actually tell the shape of the canopy and with the photo we can tell the uh the the color of it and we can mm -hmm. identify species and all this stuff right mm -hmm. but what they fail to mention is like that's all true that's that's true we can do that but what they fail to mention is number one the cost of that the 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 scope of that like how big of an area can you effectively get and how accurate it is from my from my understanding, like getting getting stuff like it's great for getting down to like a species level. It's like maybe fifty percent of the time you can nail it in a in a complex stand, right? In a in a in like a pine stand mm. or a pure black spruce stand mm -hmm. or something, maybe you'll nail it every time. But mm. um, I'm I'm just curious as to where I see drones as a lot of people getting excited and they're getting worked up about them and like oh we want to get into this. This is going to change everything. And I think that's right. I think it's true. Mm -hmm. I just think that there's people have to be careful because they might get themselves into a trouble pretty quickly thinking that this will be the saving grace for everything when it, it's, it has, it, it has a tool just like every other tool in forest management, right? Like it, it's a tool that can be used if it's used properly on a small scale for certain things. But I wanted to get your guys' opinions on kind of that. Cause I just see, I, I see some people getting carried away with, with the yeah. application of it. Right. Yeah, of course. Uh main limitation of, of drones is that uh, there are sampling tools. You cannot do a, a, a force inventory of a township no. that is of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, six by six miles is a township? Uh, that, yeah, yes, six, uh, yeah, 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 well, yeah, yeah around yeah. that. Yeah. So um, That's right. you cannot do that with a drone. I mean, you could, 
but uh, there are, for example, limitations not not by the technology, but by the regulations. regulations. So my understanding yeah. is it's like under 300 hectares. If you're trying to fly something under 300 hectares, that's around where it's yeah financially feasible. Yeah, anything bigger than that, and you're getting yeah. carried away. But that has to do with regulations too, yeah. and flight height yeah. and stuff. But yeah, exactly. So we, in Canada, and, and I believe in many other countries, we have a, a, a the main constraint is that you have to keep a visual line of sight with your yeah. drone at all times, meaning that the more the drone can go away from where you are is about 500 meters, depending yeah. on the size of the drone. Yeah. So 500 meters, uh, yeah, exactly what you said. No, you, you can do uh, a couple hundred hectares maybe, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be a um, uh, wall-to-wall tool. But it can be used uh, as a sampling tool because you can have... Uh, hierarchy of scales from the satellite at 30 meters or with sentinel at at 10 or 20 meters Mm -hmm. down to millimeters Mm -hmm. with a drone right and then you can scale up your field data and your drone data and extend it to to a larger area and 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 there is a, a group that is very active in norway and there is this nesa group that they are doing. They are trying to do kind of a hybrid um, inference where they use drones and as a surrogate for lidar. Yeah. And I think that the, yeah, they they are basically showing that this can be done systematically. So mm-hmm. I I see that down the road, I see that uh, forest inventory crews, for example, when you remeasure a a, a, a plot. They are gonna bring their little drone, totally. and the drone is gonna do a, a flight. So you are gonna create later a point cloud, and maybe down the road it is possible that no one is gonna ever measure again the height of a tree because we know that we can do it better from the from the air. Yeah, especially if if what you have mounted on the drone is a lidar, because now, and that's um, I mean. That's still very expensive, no? Like uh, uh, a drone with a lidar can cost about seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollars, but uh, it's bound to the price is is bound to decrease. Yeah. And then, yeah, you have a so a little lidar mounting on, on a drone, then then you don't need to. <laughs> no, it's what's well, uh, yeah. that's exactly my yeah. thoughts. Exactly right is that it's mm-hmm. meant for places where you want really specific permanent data. Mm-hmm. So like permanent sample plots that we have here in Alberta, right? Where mm-hmm. we want to know. Every 10 or 15 years, we want to take, basically, like, we go out there and do it by hand, but if we could go out and do it with a drone, and you can bring it back, and you can look at it and scale it and model it and and, and make the, the, the 3D model out of it, then you can derive volumes more easily. You can derive, like, a bunch of different things, right? Mm-hmm. If you need that specific of information. And that's what I'm, that's all I'm trying to say, is that this is a, an amazing tool that I agree. It's going to change. It's going to revolutionize the way we do forest uh, management, for sure. Absolutely. But it's just a matter of understanding that, yeah, it's only applicable in these areas. Because, I mean, the, say it takes you three hours to fly a cup walk that you want a, you want a, a post-harvest assessment of, right? Um, the processing time on that is like 10 times, right? Yeah. So like it, takes, it takes like for every hour of flying, it's like eight hours of processing time, right? So yeah. it's that it adds up right and but it's going to be i i'm really excited about it i'm i'm, yeah, I'm no. excited to see where where we go with this and where how much the technology improves to the point where we can get these 
because they look awesome. It looks super yeah. cool. And you see a drone footage going up off a truck and flying out and covering a bunch of trees and stuff like that. Oh, well, you can see the moose running and like like all that kind of stuff. It's 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 really really cool and it's it's it, it's really attractive. It's sexy to people, right? And they see this and they get jacked up. And I just want to make sure that people understand that there's yeah there's some limitations there that need yeah. to be understood before we get carried away. Yeah, no, yeah. and, and, and you're right, and and the the size of the data you create is is crazy. Like, uh, oh yeah, we were uh, a couple of weeks ago in in near Slave Lake doing uh, a cab block for. Uh, well, I don't know if David Price, when he was here, commented about his project about this seeding drone. The seeding, so, yeah, literally yeah. seeding dropping seed pods from a drone well, into a couple of shooting yeah. rather than sorry they're shooting shoot. into their yeah, soil yeah. not dropping yeah anyways we had to acquire uh, to to do a, a north of photo yeah uh, at uh, one centimeter resolution of that cap block so that the company that did the seeding could uh, basically see where suitable locations for for shooting the, the right. seeds so that they would not a rock or a stamp or a branch or right and and so they're literally de- flying before yeah. you you fly the drone out to drop the seed pods then you're, you're actually flying it out once with imagery mm-hmm. and collecting the microsites that and 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 the, and the drone will identify those microsites and literally drop them as, yeah. as close to that location as it can accurately yeah. do it that's so that, the idea yeah, yeah. because the that now the drone has um uh, what is called a real-time kinetic uh, GNS uh, receiver, so so a, a positioning system that gives you an accuracy of uh, a few centimeters. It's so, amazing. Yeah, like, it was cool. Yeah. We, we were out yeah. there uh, two weeks or last week. Last week, mm-hmm. did you? I was out at the field watching. Oh, it. I, did, right. I didn't go to Slave Lake to watch yeah. the second part, yeah. but. Yeah. Uh, watching them fly the farmer's field and it's dropping these these pods, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because it's. Because, I mean, right now, obviously, in Alberta, we do a lot of, we, we plant the seedlings, right, which are three years mm. old, and they've, yeah. they've got a head start on the grass yeah. and stuff. With the seed pods, it'll be interesting to see because they're talking about even applying direct herbicide in, like, a what a little tiny little spot around where that seed pod is, just where the seed pod is, not the rest of the area, to protect the tree so it can grow up mm-hmm. and not be competing with the grasses and whatever else. But it's just—I mean, I'm, I'm getting yeah. so specific with this, but it's—it's it's fascinating with this with this drone technology how specific you can get, right? So yeah, no, yeah. and I see that coming down the road. I, I don't think though that the technology is yet mature to scale it up. I agree, yeah. and and this is just a kind of experiment that yeah. we are doing. But down the road, I, I see that that is possible. Of course, it comes always to mind the thing of uh, okay, one more robot in this case a drone stealing <laughs> yeah. our jobs no and uh, yeah no and i i have my my thoughts about that and i think uh, and there is some truth to this but the reality is the restoration work is so huge oh yeah that if we can make it more efficient because people are gonna always be needed because they have to be in charge of the operation mm-hmm. but it's the same as a, a fellow buncher no like uh, 60 years ago, you you needed a bunch of people with chainsaws, and before that, before the chainsaw, it was hundred. No, and now with there is one person with a felon buncher that can do the job of many, and of course, it has 
drastically reduce the amount of uh, forestry jobs, but it has uh, in increased safety and many other things. And there's, oh, there's new jobs, right? Yeah, like, and there are new with, jobs. With, with the technology yeah. comes supplementary jobs, right? Yeah. So they're different. They're not yeah. the same jobs, but they change, right? Yeah, you're no. gonna need more now. You're gonna need more drone pilots, and you're gonna need more computer scientists, and you're gonna need That's more right. that kind of stuff. So it's yeah, it's not like the drone just took away like 20 jobs. It's like no, it took away 20 and it added a bunch too, just different in a different field, yeah. right? So, but I see more like uh, you're gonna if this technology work, you're gonna be able to do things that are not economically feasible today. Yeah, like uh, the case of uh, a fire in a national park where. There was such high severity that the the seed banks are gone. Right. You don't have any trees. You don't have any seeds. And what do you do? No, you can you can seed, but maybe with this technology you can you can do a more directed seeding that then requires. Uh, like it can be more targeted. No, and uh, what you mentioned of the spraying. No, that people have concern with spraying all these uh, herb, uh, herbicides and. With that, you could do the impact, environmental impact of that way less because yeah. in, instead of doing a blanket uh, spraying of a block, it would be targeted to a few square centimeters of where you know the seedlings are. Exactly. So, I mean, I yeah, there are applications in forestry definitely of, oh, yeah. of, of drone technology, and and it will come. It will come. We are not yet there, but uh, it will come, and yeah, the jobs will change, and uh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I agree. I mean, yeah. What I saw with the with the drone seeding technology was I don't see it being necessarily applicate like a good application for like boreal forest and that kind of stuff uh, maybe one day but like I, I see it more as an application for what you're talking mm. about places where it wasn't like a cut block mm. where you have perfect planting sites and there's lots of seed already there and there's like you know all that kinds of stuff i see it as places where yeah maybe you have like erosion control mm. and you're dropping grass yeah. seed on an erosion slope to yeah. try and you know what i mean or you're dropping like you said a, a burn yeah. where there's no more seeds left or yeah. I don't. I think it was um, he was talking about South America planting eucalyptus seeds on the slopes to try and erosion yeah. control and stuff. So that all that kind of stuff, yeah. I think, is hugely yeah for sure. It's all things that have very difficult access of that because of the slope are dangerous to be be walking there with a machine or on foot. Yeah. Uh, so there are and the cost of having and a yeah. planter go out too yeah. is going to be drastically more yeah. than having a drone do it. You think over time, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But uh, yeah, the reality is uh, technology is coming. We we have this revolution of uh, so much. We have so much data that we cannot handle it. So now <laughs> we have another like technology coming to the help that is artificial intelligence. So, you know, so you kind of feel yeah. like the NSA with all that data. <laughs> <Just keep> that. <laughs> That's crazy. No, and, and this is, no, what I wanted when I brought up this example of the cat blogging in, in Slave Lake, Michelle told me yesterday that one of the acquisitions we did, it was the data that we generated, so the photos plus the point cloud, all this data, it was over 150 gigabytes. And it's, oh, my God. And it's just five hectares. <laughs> hmm. Five so, hectares and yeah. it's... How, how many gigabytes did you say? 150. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying, yeah. right? Is yeah. It's just how much data do you need to get the specs that you want? Like, for yeah. example, with the drones... Um, people are talking about oh we can get like sub centimeter resolution uh, with the drones right and for us like we've done that here mm -hmm. in in at greenlink here and it's not it's completely unnecessary mm -hmm. and it costs way too much it's like we don't anything 
under six centimeters for vegetation, mm-hmm. you get the the wind is blowing right. So in between in between passes, you get the leaves move and the and the trees move and the vegetation moves, and then you just get this big blur and you can't see any detail right. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have six centimeter, then all of a sudden you can see branches, you can see kind of a group of leaves instead of just this big blur of nonsense right. So like sub centimeter resolution is good for say. Uh, yeah, like reclamation on uh, like a, a bare bare soil place, right? And you want to do reclamation there and see, I don't know, whatever, what kind of grasses species yeah. you have, right? That kind of stuff maybe. But for tree purposes, it's it's just it's you have to fly too low, too many passes is too expensive. But there's so there's a point at which more information is not better. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, and but but for that, uh, AI comes to the help because. Uh, uh, the advantage of all these uh, convolutional neural networks that are basically artificial intelligence, ma- machine learning kind of, um, they are not algorithms because mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of heuristics, no? It's machine heuristics. Heuristics. Uh, heuristics. Uh, sorry sure. for That's my, okay. <laughs> heuristic is something, it's a rule of thumb, so, so it's something that is not uh, deterministic, it's mechanic. Oh, okay. Uh, so basically, the we can process large amounts of data using this uh, AI and and derive the information so that in the end we don't have to deal with this right. huge amount of data. No, and and I think that this is the trend. But I mean, this is completely. We are talking of probably twenty or thirty years when quantum computing c- comes and we can do operations. At, uh, several orders of money to maybe faster than now. Yeah, we can have all these intelligence built in the platforms, be mm-hmm. it drones or satellites. Yeah, so you can do the raw data processing in the platform and stream or deliver or transmit only processed data, the data that you want. So say, for example, that I don't know, you you, you want to know the density of or nest of forest and caterpillar, you send a drone, and and the drone has the intelligence inbuilt to just send you a uh, file with mm. locations where where there is a density of. Gotcha. Okay. So that's that's the but artificial again, intelligence. We, yeah. yeah, we are talking <laughs> of we are talking of uh, several long uh, time, long long time. All those things. Uh, are accelerating a lot so for it sure could be that uh, we talk again in 10 years time it's already there i don't know well i've yeah. always always i've always said here like we talk about automating inventories and stuff like that right mm-hmm. and although we can do automated inventories now they're not at the accuracy that i the, like that we want right they're you maybe 50 or 60 or maybe even get 80 percent on a really homogeneous forest right but um yeah, I see it. It's only getting better. When we throw in all this extra information, like say we did we we did an automated inventory with just um, just the LiDAR and, and imagery, right? And it was using uh, color balancing to determine species and stuff. And now that we got the photogrammetry and we can add in like the old inventory and we can throw in all this data that we have now and we can get it way, way closer. So mm-hmm. something with like like, like artificial intelligence... <laughs> for this like i think it's only a matter of time before like i don't have a job and it's just that like i have a different <laughs> job right like it's you know what i mean it's I'll, I'll 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 be you know what i mean it's it's just a different thing so it's yeah data entry like that i think like you're right it's gonna get 
a computer can do it better once we teach it how to do it yeah. right so yeah. but it's just a matter of time like i think yeah like 10 20 years maybe this will all be just the standard of practice right yeah no that, uh, it's a bit scary <laughs> yeah, no, skynet's but, coming <laughs> but it's not the enemy i, I say no the, the robots or machines or automation is not the enemy providing that the public is the owner of this uh, technology if mm -hmm. the technology is owned by companies then yes then we have a problem but we well that that's a completely different <laughs> yeah we can, but, we're, say we're yeah. already we're already on yeah. over an hour right now yeah. so we, I don't think we should go down yeah. that road yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, like I said, we're we're almost we're over an hour here. But uh, do you want to mention like do either of you guys want to mention like other projects you guys are working on that are that, that are involved with this? Like kind of some final thoughts regarding remote sensing. I know we could go on forever. I just got to try to regulate this a bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna let sure. Rob talk a little again about uh, the barnard work and 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 then maybe we mention quickly. We have already touched on the on the force inventory in the Northwest Territories, and maybe uh, I, I can quickly describe what we are doing for sure. with, with drones and restoration. Yep, let's do it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, just, I guess, sum up with the burned area work. Um, just bring that mic sure. right in there, yeah. So right now, like, we're, we're mapping burns from last year in 2017. So... Our, uh, our timing for completing this project is usually come June, July of the following year. So mm -hmm. come June, July of this summer, we'll have the following last year's burns all mapped. Yeah. Uh, like I said, this data is available to the public yeah. on the Canadian Wildland Fire Information website. Um, but where the research is going with this is is like some of the things we talked about is getting new sensors, um, um, you know, starting to do the research so we can map fires even better yeah. with finer resolution data. That yeah. Sentinel is one of them. Yeah. We did a little bit exploring with uh, radar data nice. in another project that we've done. So looking at the backscatter. Uh, backscatter. Backscatter. So, so <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get into that, right? Yeah. Okay. So with optical imagery, such as Landsat, it's based on reflectance of vegetation. Okay. Okay. With, um, with radar, it's based on a, uh, it's an active sensor. So it shoots out its own energy. Yeah. Okay. And what comes back, almost like what we're talking about with the point clouds. Yeah. Okay. That information that comes back is recorded and it's called backscatter. Oh, okay. All right. Gotcha. So it gives okay. you a little bit different picture of what's on the earth's surface, but yeah. Uh, the research is, is trying to look at, you know, can we map fires uh, from radar backscatter? Um, I think, you know, where the future is, I still think it's with Landsat, yeah. uh, with the Sentinel, with the optical, because the timing of the imagery is much quicker. Yeah. Um, it's free, yeah. you know, for one, and it's proven technology. So, so in the future, with this National Burned Area Composite, we are going to have some of the new satellite sensors feeding into it. Mm -hmm. um, I think improvements with the agencies and how they're doing their fire mapping is also going to make this product even better. Mm -hmm. You know, it even does then less work for us because if agencies get away from saying aerial GPS and aerial surveys and, and focus more on the satellite imagery or the aerial photo stuff that Alberta does. Yeah. You know, it just makes a better product for them and yeah. a better product for us. For sure. So that makes sense. Um, and then with burn severity, we touched a little bit on that. That would be a very interesting attribute. Uh, I think that would complement, you know, the other attributes that we have, such as burned area, fire start and end dates, fire cause, yeah. those sorts of things. So it just brings more information to what happened on the ground from that fire. Yeah. You know, and then like for the research of that, you can start looking at, you know, maybe different like spatial temporal 
uh, relationships of the fire events that's going on in Canada. Okay. You know, where are, with fire cause, uh, where are human fires, you know, where are those occurring? Is there a repeated, you know, kind of frequent coverage of human fires, say, out in somewhere where there's lots of camping, you know, as yeah. opposed to northern Canada, which is going to be mostly uh, lightning. So. Yeah. So lots of different interesting things that you can look at when you start having all this data put together and you're having a longer time series. Mm-hmm. Like right now, our data only goes back to 2004. So just over 10 years, but we're working towards having it going back to 1986. Oh, okay. So we're going to have that 30-year time series and we can start huh. looking at trends. Okay. All right, so. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, so much, there's so much information. Like it's, I'm going to have to put a disclaimer at the front of this podcast being like, caution, very, <laughs> very specific content. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing stuff that, yeah, like, like we were saying, right. It has a, it has the potential to change everything. And as technology moves forward, it's only going to get more efficient and better data means better management in the yeah. end. Right. So, and I'd like to, um, like one of the things I would like to do is actually have a faster delivery. Oh, Guillermo's locked up. I'll just keep talking. <laughs> It'd be nice to get into more of the real-time fire mapping. But then we run into the challenges of with satellite imagery. We're going to have the haze and the smoke from the fires and, yeah. and whatnot. So it makes a few more challenges as opposed to doing end-of-season burns. But I think with this product, you know, that is somewhere where we can move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, is maybe start looking at more quicker uh, fire mapping so we get quicker product out there that's yeah. available to the public. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, the faster you can get it, then the, like, the more updated it is and... Yeah, no, that's that makes perfect sense. I, I'm I'm imagining now, uh, like a live app, where you can watch the fire yeah. burn, right? Yeah. Like you go, oh, there it is, right yeah. there. I can literally see it, right? You can see the smoke, and you. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm imagining, right? That, I think that's only that'd be pretty cool. A yes. matter of time before. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to it'd have to be funded, and I don't think that's the government's priority. But yeah. I mean, that would be pretty awesome to be able to do something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, most yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, this remote sensing thing. It's <laughs> yeah, it's infinite amount of information that like yeah, I don't know, I don't know how you manage it all. <laughs> but uh, you wanted to talk about uh, yeah, no, just a, a, a quick note on so in addition to this uh, fire mapping and, and forest inventory in large areas like in the Northwest Territories, we we have from the last couple of years almost started doing some some work with drones and uh, in this case restoration so we are part of uh, a big uh, project that is called the boreal ecosystem recovery assessment that is led by uh, greg mcdermott he's uh, a professor at the university of calgary and we are trying w- to do many things uh, but one of them is to detect and measure the heights of ceilings in restored seismic lines. Okay, this is so, for caribou habitat, right? Yes, yeah. this is a restoration of caribou. Trigger habitat. word, caribou. Yeah, caribou. <laughs> yeah, keyword. Um, yeah, so this is um, uh, an interesting uh, project that we're doing, and and it has a little AI component. So mm. we are trying in the detection part. This is done by a collaborator. Uh, Matthias uh, Matthias uh, Schubert from the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. Okay, and uh, he's uh, well has student that has been trying to uh, detect uh, ceiling using or drone f- photography. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing the the results. Mm-hmm. The, it it kind of achieves uh, very good rates of of, of detection. 
and and the advantage of that is once you have trained the the ne neural network it is basically it's gonna the outcome is gonna be a, a point shape file with location of seedlings so you want to do uh you actually have a point shape file so you actually know the exact location of every yeah. seedling yeah. and its height yeah uh, and, and well, species i'm guessing too well species yeah this is something that is on the pipeline gotcha. that we haven't developed yet but um the the rate of detection it depends on the size of the seedling. No? Gotcha. So for a smaller seedling, it's not as good as for bigger. For bigger seedlings, is ninety something percent. It's crazy. Nail it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So uh, I think that this is gonna have application for for uh, uh, making more efficient this uh, establishment surveys to yeah. after a few years, seven eight years after you had done the treatment to see how many you have. Uh, a sufficient stocking in the line totally yeah uh, yeah that that could be an application so no that makes sense to me yeah. that's exactly the type yeah. of stuff small scale stuff that i'm talking yeah. about that's perfect mm -hmm. for drones right yeah, yeah exactly exactly cool and uh so yeah no it's um in the northwest territories you said you're doing you're, you're already doing an automated inventory too on a it's a it's a course, course well it is right? is a, a management slash reconnaissance level so okay. we we provide actually five forest attributes uh, stand height stand volume biomass crown closure stand age but many of those are derived so okay. we are very confident on the height part mm -hmm, of course uh, it's very good because well we don't have wall-to-wall -wall either though right. so we use a thing that is called knn imputation so basically we have a number of surrogate plots yeah. that are coming from satellite lidar and these are used to in any given location where there is no data based on the looks of the different uh, satellite imagery that we have for this point we yeah. we take the four most similar uh, places with field data or with this surrogate data yeah. to that and with that we impute a value of these five attributes so gotcha so with so that yeah. we can do wall-to-wall force inventory maps in, in, in a very large area but of course the accuracy of this is not the same as a photo interpretive uh, right but it, uh, places yeah. like northwest yeah. territories where there is no inventory yeah something like this is is a huge leg up on what they currently have which is nothing so, exactly yeah. <laughs> compared to nothing is much better. <laughs> yeah it's much better and it's very cheap because i mean uh, well i don't know if we included our time and uh, but still would be very very much uh, yeah cheaper than than uh, a photo interpreted inventory but of course the quality course. is not the same but for large area planning and i think when they are already using it for a number of things rob yeah i talked to them i believe it's some like post uh fire harvesting so salvage logging okay uh, they can yeah. use it for uh as well as for any kind of pre-planning on on any kind of harvesting activities out where they have no forest inventory yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well it makes sense yeah. it's it's just yeah yeah, the application of this stuff is only going to get broader and broader and broader as time goes on, right? So, yeah. um, all right. So that's over an hour. That's an hour and a half. <laughs> so let's. Uh, you guys have any final thoughts you want to mention before we before we shut her down? But no, no, we're good. Just that um, covered a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Remote sensing is fun, especially in though we are very lucky to be active in this time because oh. it's is 
is amazing. It's, it's amazing. so cool. It's it really so is. Cool. It's really yeah. exciting. And the more yeah. the more I get into yeah. involved with it, the more I want to yeah. learn. Right? Yeah. Maybe I should go back and do a master's or something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. But uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming okay. on, guys. This was no, this was pleasure. really awesome. I'm gonna have to make sure to warn everybody. I was telling yeah. Rob when you were yeah. gone there for a second. Everyone's gonna have to grab a pen and a paper and don't be afraid to pause and write stuff down because we've got yeah. so much information here. It's yeah. hard. It might be hard to keep up, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this was perfect. This is exactly what I was hoping to get out and just kind of get the full, the full, you know, I guess the full view of what remote sensing can do and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I'm sure it will be, if I, you guys came back in a year's time, it'd be a whole different leg up on things I mm-hmm. imagine. So no, it's cool stuff. Yeah. So thanks a lot guys. Okay. This is great. No. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you.